0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of their disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. Nord Pod, Nord Pod, Nord Pod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Script Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. This is Matthew Zachary, but I'm not the one doing the show today. Standing in for me is my co-founder here at Oscar Health, Andrew McDowell. And he's welcoming Dr. Kathleen Donahue, the show she is the director of the division of rare diseases and medical genetics at the fda's office of new drugs lots of syllables important job over 350 million people in the world have a rare disease and yet only 10 percent of rare diseases have an fda approved treatment this is not okay Dr. Donahue oversees the national hub designed to move the needle on that statistic, providing a shared pool of resources to spark new discoveries and speed up the creation of new therapies for rare diseases. During the taping, a thunderstorm rolled in in Dr. Donahue's neighborhood. So prepare for a meteorological guest you weren't expecting to be on the show as they talk through the critical role that patient advocate groups play in bringing rare disease patients into the process of making these new discoveries actually happen. You're also going to learn about the RDCA-DAP, the all-important central repository of shared data about rare diseases, with a very alphabet soupy name, D A P, R-D-C-A-D-A-P, RDCA-DAP, I didn't name it, That's what it's called. And finally, they also cover the powerful need for advocacy groups to make sure the data they collect from patients is gathered in a way that makes it possible for them to submit it to RDCA DAP. Enjoy the show. Today on
0: NordPod, we have Dr. Kathleen Donahue, who serves as the Director of the Division of Rare Diseases and Medical Genetics in the Office of New Drugs at the FDA. Welcome, Dr. Donahue.
2: Hi, Andrew. Glad to be with you today.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here as well. By way of introduction to this topic, you know, I think a good way to set the table here is to look at the stakes. There are over 350 million people in the world who have a rare disease— but only 10% of rare diseases have an FDA-approved treatment. Do I have that right? Is that an updated statistic?
2: <laughs> I think that's pretty close. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, there's, there's great unmet need.
0: There's great unmet need. And so when we look to move the needle on that statistic in a much better direction, the work that you're doing is, is quite critical, So how does the work that you do fit into the process of finding more FDA-approved treatments for the rare diseases of the world?
2: Oh, thanks for that question. So, you know, the work that my team does at the FDA every day, a lot of it is sort of invisible because it's confidential. But every day we sit down with drug developers. More and more often we have patients at the table for these discussions, and I'm always glad to see patients included. They offer a really important perspective on the the questions that we're addressing. And and my team works to provide the best possible guidance to drug developers about, you know, how to design their clinical trial to make sure that we're going to, you know, keep patients safe, but also generate results that could be used to support an eventual approval for an effective drug. And, you know, how can we do that in the clearest, fastest way possible?
0: And what are some of the, speaking in broad strokes, requirements for a well-run process when it comes to running a trial, when it comes to gathering data, the type of data that needs to be gathered?
2: Sure. So the key thing in terms of showing evidence that a drug works is that we need to, to be clear that it's not that whatever the result is that we're seeing is not because of some other factor besides the drug. Right, And so typically the way that's done is with a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trial. That's sort of the strongest design for eliminating some of those other potential sources of bias and generating that strong evidence that, that a drug is really working.
0: Who are some of the, the most important partners when it comes to producing the data that can be used, especially of, of a genetic nature, to develop additional treatments?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, in terms of who should you have at the table, who do you need on your team? It starts with patients. So we have to start by finding out, you know, what are the symptoms that that really matter to patients? And then we also need to partner with with academics who are the experts in the natural history of the disease and often the mechanistic aspects of the disease. And so it's really helpful to kind of build on a solid foundation there. And then typically a sponsor is, you know, pharmaceutical company or a drug developer is going to be looking for an endpoint, you know, how can we measure benefit in, in these patients? And so the best endpoints are precise. We can measure them really well. We can measure them precisely. In the end, something that matters to patients. And you also need something that's going to change in a relatively short period of time. Hmm. You know, unless you want to do a 20-year clinical trial, you know, you need to pick something that that's going to change during the course of the trial for most of the patients. And so those are kind of the critical factors that come together in, in picking an endpoint. And once you've identified an endpoint, you know, you can start to also think about trial design. But one of the key challenges is that I I like to joke with my staff that designing rare disease drug development programs, it's a bit like playing Jenga. Hmm. You know, you've got like one little piece here. And if you move that, you have to be careful not to knock over the whole tower. So (laughs) you're, you're, you're looking to balance a lot of different factors in the design of the trial. And. You know, if you pick an endpoint that can only be measured in 10 percent of the patient population, well, that's not going to work in a rare disease where you've already got a small sample size. So you've got to go back and think about, you know, what's an endpoint we can measure in most of the patients? Okay, and then how are we going to identify those patients to enroll in the trial? We need enrollment criteria that makes sense. Often that means including pediatric patients with these rare diseases. And we really like to see inclusion of pediatric patients in the trials. But there are laws and regulations with special protections for pediatric patients. and so. We need to think about that in the design of the trial and make sure that we have have those aspects addressed in order to include the pediatric patients. And so it's this balance going back and forth with patients, academics, and then the drug developers. And both drug developers and the FDA have a whole team of experts that work together on the development of a drug, starting with the chemists. So you've got to be able to to manufacture the drug reliably and reproducibly and cleanly. We need to know exactly exactly What's in the drug, what are the excipients, right? So most drugs include an active ingredient and then other excipients that that help with excipients. Hello. There's
0: there's a real jargon alert. Excipients. It is. Yes. It is.
2: But you know, if you think about a tablet that you might swallow, sure. It might have a, a stomach-friendly coating and it might have a few little additives in there in addition to the, the drug itself. Those are right? not so the active ingredients,
0: always, the, pardon me, yeah. the, those are not the active ingredients, those are the excipients, understood.
2: Yeah, The or you might think of them as the inactive ingredients, sure. right? So most drugs have a mix of those and, and you've gotta be able to show us that you can manufacture the same drug over and over and over again with exactly the right balance of active ingredient and inactive ingredients. And so that's highly technical and we have chemists the FDA and the drug companies have chemists who do that too. And that's a really important place to start
0: So when it comes to engaging the right set of patients, you mentioned the desirability of bringing in pediatric patients. Uh, I'm sure that there's also priority put on bringing in patients from diverse backgrounds so that there's more validity to the results of these trials. Is that right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And we like to see and often push for the broadest inclusion criteria possible in the trials because we also recognize that patients want access to innovative therapies. And so if a trial design has really restrictive entry criteria, that limits access for those patients and also makes the eventual results a lot less generalizable to the broader patient population. So it's fairly typical for the FDA to be a proponent of fairly broad enrollment criteria, you know, and then sponsors have have good scientific reasons why they might wanna focus the enrollment criteria a little bit more narrowly. And so there's always a balance there.
0: And when it comes to gathering together the right set of people for those groups that you are working with, how important is it for patient advocacy groups to be engaged in that process?
2: I think that drug development goes best when you've got really strong alignment among the patient groups and the academics and the drug developer and the regulators. And so before a drug is going into the clinic, before it goes to the bedside, we have what we call pre-IND meetings. And, and so that's a really great opportunity to kind of put all our cards on the table and have a really good scientific discussion. And I, I welcome patient participation at those discussions. I think a key piece of that is that that participation is at the discretion of the companies. So the way that typically works is that the companies might reach out to the patient group and ask them to identify a patient representative. And then, but again, you know, that patient, those, those discussions are confidential, And so patient participation is at the discretion of the companies and the participant typically has to sign a confidentiality agreement. There's a whole process there. But there are plenty of other opportunities for patient engagement. And one of the big ones is patient focused drug development meetings. Hmm. And I think those are a huge asset to a community and to drug developers and to us as regulators. So I'm so pleased to see more and more communities undertaking that effort. We reference those reports at every stage of drug development. So at least once or twice a day, I'm citing a patient-focused drug development report to a sponsor when we're urging them to have broader enrollment criteria or pick a more clinically meaningful endpoint or, or whatever it is. So patients' voices really do matter. And they, I especially value them when it comes to the design of the trial, because at the end of the day, we work for patients and we want these treatments to make a difference for patients and to treat what matters to patients. And so if the community is clear about what that is, then we can talk with academics and scientists about how to measure it. And so I think that that's really crucial. So I would say patient engagement is best pre-clinic, like right before we're going to go from the bench to the bedside. I think that's really the crucial stage for for patient um, engagement. And we welcome it at every stage, but I think that's where it can make the biggest impact.
0: Very cool. And one of, one of the big tools that I think we want to highlight today on NordPod and in this discussion is the Rare Diseases Cures Accelerator Data and Analytics Platform, also known affectionately as the RDCA DAP.
2: <laughs> it's quite a—you know, it's, we're the government, so we have to have an acronym. It's
0: true. It's necessary.
2: Yeah. So the FDA invested pretty aggressively in this platform, and we, we did it for a reason. And we think it has the power to do more than just about anything else to advance drug development for patients with rare diseases. And and the purpose, right, so NORD is a partner and CPATH is a partner with the FDA in this. And, um, you know, CPATH has a lot of experience with pulling in data from a variety of sources, from academic data sets, from patient registries, from um, pharmaceutical company, you know, placebo arms of trials. You know, they can pull in data from all these different sources and they're a trusted broker. They know how to do this. They know how to handle the agreements to make sure that everyone's confidentiality is respected and they can handle the technical aspects of integrating those data sets. So they have the wherewithal to do that. And the FDA wanted to create this opportunity for the rare disease community because every patient is so important, and especially in rare diseases, that data is so important. And and I feel like across the board, I see patients with rare diseases standing up and volunteering to undergo some pretty impressive and difficult testing, whether it's natural history or part of a placebo-controlled trial. And that, that data is so precious. We can't afford not to have it shared. And so we're really working to kind of set a standard that, that those data belong to patients and the patient community, and they should be, you know, shared with that community in order to advance drug development. So that's what the RDCA-DAP is for. And when you have all of that data pooled, what it does is paint a much richer picture of the natural history of the disease. And what that means is that we can design much better clinical trials with a much better chance of succeeding if the drug is working. You know, so I sometimes joke that designing rare disease clinical trials is a little bit like trying to build the plane while you're flying it. Mm. You know, we, we learn an awful lot from the first generation of a randomized controlled trials for a disease. You know, we, we're always surprised in some way by the results. And so having more, you know, richer natural history data and making sure that we're always adding, you know, with all the effort that goes into a clinical trial, that we're always adding to our fund of knowledge about the disease so that the next generation of trials can be designed even better. So that's really what this is for, is Mm. to create a trusted place where groups can come together and share what they know so that all of the patients, so that everyone benefits from that hard-won knowledge.
0: So, yeah, fascinating. It it, it seems like an incredible resource. And, of course, it becomes more and more valuable as more and more organizations choose to, you know, become aware of it and then choose to participate in it. Uh, So Mm -hmm. a, a question I have is what kinds of data are collected by patient advocacy groups that they may or may not know they can share with this system?
2: Sure. So one of the things that I'm really hoping to see more patient advocacy groups do is to start thinking about this at the very beginning. So the first time you're talking with an academic about a natural history study, I'd love to hear patient advocacy groups start asking those academics, "Hey, are you going to donate this data to the to the Cures Accelerator? What data are you going to donate? When are you going to donate it? You know, and really start advocating for themselves for the data sharing from the very beginning." And the reason why that's important is that patients who are participating in a study sign informed consent documents, and those documents should explain how the data is going to be used and and shared. And one of the problems is if you don't anticipate data sharing, like with the Cures Accelerator, if you don't anticipate it in those informed consent documents, it can be very, very difficult after the fact to then share those data. So it's really crucial that patient advocacy groups review those plans for data sharing and ensure that the right consent forms are in place to facilitate that. So a common obstacle, for example, would be stating in an informed consent that you're not going to share the data for commercial purposes. Well, certainly, if I were a patient in a clinical trial, I would not want anyone to sell my data to, you know, Google or an ad company, right? Like not those kinds of commercial purposes. But, you know, if you want a company to develop a drug, well, that's a commercial purpose. And so a lot of patients, I think, inadvertently can sort of box themselves out of of opportunities here with overly restrictive language. So we're doing a lot to encourage patient groups to really advocate for that data sharing from the beginning and to make it easy to do that, right? Like we recognize that individual academics don't have the time and energy to clean data sets and you know, merge the data with with sets from other stakeholders. And so that's why the FDA is funding CPATH and Nord to do that in the Cures As We really wanted to create this shared infrastructure to kind of lighten the burden for patient groups and academics and, and pharmaceutical companies and make it easy to do the right thing.
0: So two big takeaways at this stage are that we absolutely want people to know that the RDCA DAP exists, and it's there to create a much more useful wider pool of data for the development of therapies for rare diseases. That's one. And the other is that patient advocacy groups should know that the data that they collect in partnership with academics is valuable, and that before they embark on their next such engagement, they should get in touch with NORD to figure out the best way to ensure that that data is useful for this purpose. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. So anybody can Google RDCA DAP or Cures Accelerator and, and find it and reach out to them. They're really approachable. The folks involved are super friendly and excited to partner with, with all of these stakeholders. And so, yes, patient groups absolutely can and should reach out to the Cures Accelerator and find out how they can get connected and and, you know, the, the accelerator will sort of meet them, the staff there will meet the patient groups where they are. If you're at the very beginning, they can provide sample language for various data use and data sharing agreements that groups could then take to academics or commercial sponsors. So wherever you are in the, you know, in that process, the Cures Accelerator could sort of meet you there. They're equipped to do that. And, and so I would heartily encourage If folks have not already reached out to them, to please do that and understand what the opportunities might be for your patient group to kind of move things forward.
0: Very cool. Dr. Donahue, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
0: And we're back. The the next question that I want to ask you is, do you have the ability to speak to any specific success stories? I know that this is a realm of privacy, and so there might be limits to what you can talk about. But uh, if there is an illustration of the sort of thing that this makes possible or that this could make possible, I'd love to hear it.
2: Sure. So one of the things that the Cures Accelerator can do is generate a clinical trials simulator. So just like pilots practice flying planes on simulators before they're actually in a plane, this allows us scientists to practice running pretend clinical trials before we actually have to enroll patients in them. And so CPATH has an example of this in the Alzheimer's space, where they took data pooled from a number of different companies, a number of different trials, and then they they set up basically a web page with a bunch of different slider buttons. And so you could look at how many patients do I need to enroll? What stage of disease? You know, if I enroll early stage disease, what does that look like? If I enroll late stage disease, what does that look like? If I, as a drug developer, know about how effective my drug looks, I can factor that in. And so it gives you, you know, just like on a, um, a flight simulator, you could move the controls up or down or left or right and you could add power to the engines or draw it down or you could add drag to the wings. You know, there's different things you can adjust to fly a plane. There are different things you can adjust in the design of a clinical trial and it allows you to practice moving all those pieces. So tying it back to my Jenga analogy from earlier, it allows you to kind of see in real time, you know, if I move this piece, does the whole tower fall down or does that actually still work? And then can I move another piece to make it stronger? And so the, the clinical trial simulator is a really practical application of what um, the Cures Accelerator can do. And, and that's a key way that, that we can design the next clinical trial so much better.
0: So this pool of data is so large that it can actually be used to drive clinical trial simulations. That is fascinating. Yeah. When it comes to successfully engaging patient advocacy groups, just looking at that entire community... How much of a problem is it? How, how much data has been collected that we currently can't bring in to DAP?
2: The issue is that, you know, the data belong to the company that collects it. And so if there isn't an agreement in place ahead of time and the right informed consent documents, the company doesn't have to share the data and the FDA can't make a company share the data. And there can be some some very strong commercial reasons why a company might not want to share certain data and certainly not until certain milestones have passed. And so this is part of the discussion is I personally feel that placebo-arm data is obtained at great cost to the patient community and is of great value in designing a clinical trial simulator. And so I would love to see a culture evolve where it just becomes routine, that patients and companies all expect that the placebo-arm data is going to be donated to a shared repository fairly promptly after the completion of a trial in order to inform design of, of next-generation therapies. I really do feel like that should be a norm across, across this whole area. But we're not quite there yet. And so I think as our experience builds, as more and more companies work with CPATH and understand that their data, you know, the patient-level data will be protected and confidentiality will be protected and, you know, really core commercial interests are going to be protected but that we can all bring a little something to the table and walk away with a whole lot more.
0: Beautifully put. Yeah, so how long has this norm been in place, so to speak? And and what do you think it's going to take to shift it?
2: So what I think it's going to take, I know that that norm is evolving now. So I've been pleasantly surprised to see how quickly the needle has moved just in the last two years. I'm really starting to see a lot more buy-in from companies, a lot more awareness among patient groups. So I'm excited by the progress that's been made and I don't think we're too far away from from having a pretty broadly shared understanding around the importance of of pooling our data and particularly that the placebo arm data.
0: That's magnificent. Well Dr. Donahue, we just want to thank you very much for your incredible work in this area and uh, I hope that this program can do just a little bit to play a role in significantly shifting the norms of data collection and data sharing in the direction that we need to send them in.
2: Well, I thank you for this opportunity because I think it's one of the the most impactful things that, that patient groups could do to really, really push things forward. So I appreciate this chance and I'm excited by all the progress that's happening. And the truth is that I have very little to do with it. There are... A lot of folks at NORD and a lot of folks at CPATH working very hard on this. Really, the main FDA contribution was just recognizing the gap and then putting the funding there, because why should individual patient groups have to generate this infrastructure one by one by themselves? It's not realistic. And so we really wanted to to build this for patients in order to empower them to to advance their own pipelines. And it's exciting to see it starting to work.
0: Fantastic, and, and and you, listener, if you are in a position to help move things in the right direction in terms of the way in which data is collected, in terms of running the next partnership that you're about to engage in with it with an academic group or a, a corporation to ensure that the data is collected in a way so that it can be shared with RDCA DAP, please think about the best way to do so because the more data we have in this pool the better off we will be in terms of finding therapies for more rare diseases during our lifetimes.
2: That's right, Andrew. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kathleen Donahue, for being on NordPod. We appreciate it a great deal. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66. And we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Off Script Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Leslie Nordstrom, and Andrew McDowell. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by The Salvatones. Learn more about the music of The Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.